continuing our trend this year, uh, this is the third in our you know, classic film series now, I'm going to be covering a film that I don't really like. I mean, I, it's not to say that I dislike it, but this is definitely not my thing. I'm not into horror. So even a really well-done horror movie is still just going to be a horror movie at the end of the day. I can appreciate this film. This this film is a classic for a good reason. Although, to continue another trend we've been doing this year, this seems to be a classic kind of by accident. It's not as bad as some of the other things. Um, it's not like uh, the film we covered two weeks ago, for example. And it's not as bad as some of the other films we covered earlier this year. But this one instead feels more like it's a film that could have been campy and substantially less tense and inter interesting, but because of changes that were mandated... Uh, let, me, let, me take that, let me walk that back. Because of several changes pushed by several people, this film became better than it otherwise would have been. I want to mention here, by the way, I love the way they did the casting. In fact, I love it so much, I kind of adopted it for my own approach. Now, I don't do casting because I'm not a director with money and power in order to be able to actually make movies or films or shows or whatever, but this is how I do character design for the most part. They start off unisex. They're just characters. Usually I have code names for them. Rather, you know, I'll refer to them as Brazil, for example, for a character who's from Brazil. In a story I'm actually working on in my head right now. And that's their code name. I haven't decided their gender yet. Instead of been working on their backstory and fleshing that out and trying to get it to them to the point where they are in the story, then actually writing the story. And if anything during that process kind of informs me of what kind of gender they should be sure. And if it doesn't, well, then I flip a coin. But if I was casting, and this is why I say I took this directly from Alien, because when they were casting this, they specifically wanted to get the best actor for the job regardless of what gender that actor was. Hence, we'll take whatever. You'll notice we have a hell of a cast here. we got Dan O'Bannon. Uh, whoop, that's not him. That's the writer. Sorry. We've got Tom Skerritt. we got Harry Dean Stanton. we got Ian Holm. We've got Yafit Koto. We, I'm not going to go through the whole list. It, it's basically everyone. Everyone is this awesome cast of awesome. Except for that Sigourney Weaver chick. She was actually a theatrical actress who was pretty new on the scene and, in fact, had severe, severe issues at certain points, which I'll bring up later. But mostly, mostly a big, big, uh, big star cast. Older people trying to add some credit to the thing. Most films of this nature tended to have younger people as the stars because this is a horror film. It is in many ways structured like a typical monster movie. Okay, we've, we establish our lives, we establish the norm, so that the norm can then be interrupted by the introduction of the monster, then there's a tension period, usually there's some kind of additional twist other than the monster we have to deal with, then we have to go fight the monster, people are picked off one by one, and then the last person makes their last stand, and then the monster is defeated. It, it follows the pattern almost perfectly. There's kind of an addendum there, which I'll discuss much later. None of that is an insult, by the way. It's just, this is how this is structured, which is important because, of course, they not only brought Weaver in as the one who would live, but they also gave her less billing. I don't 100% know if that was a deliberate ploy, but if it was, it was brilliant. Because nobody expects the random no-name actress to be the one who actually lives through this cast, right? But I want to talk about a few things. So we've got a good cast, right? Uh, older cast, I already mentioned that. We have Dan O'Bannon, who's the writer. 
and he really wanted to do a thing with real-looking aliens rather than, you know, basketballs that have been painted. We have Star Wars-inspired sets, which was also helped by uh, the visual effects supervisor who all went over to work on Empire Strikes Back while working on this film. So you know we have some quality with regards to that. He also ended up working on the... Sorry, uh, the, some of the things they specifically worked on were the ships, too. You can kind of tell the model that they show for the Nostromo... It looks a lot like a Star Wars vessel, and that's not even a complaint. They do greeble it up nicely. We've got slow space travel. They actually mention an actual system, uh, Zeta Reticuli, or is it Reticuli, I forget how they pronounce it, but it is a real system. Also, they have to go in stasis for these long trips. Also, they do actually have FTL, by the way. I don't know if you caught that, but even within this film, it is established they can go 39 light years in 10 months. That is faster than light. It's just slow by comparison to what we're usually used to when it comes to science fiction. Hence the need for the stasis pods. Unless you just want to hang out for ten months with nothing to do. Yeah. They also really wanted to... I mentioned the Star Wars-inspired sets. They wanted to have truckers in space, was the specific phrase. Less pristine, more worked in, more you know gritty. Uh, in many ways inspired also by uh, airplane graveyards in, com in it comes to the design. Let's see, they talk about the, the fact that it's a freighter. The fact that they have focus on shares and cash. That's a, that's a big focus, the early stuff. It's very, 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 very low-tech. The landing craft is literally damaged just by landing. And they're super careful about it. All the monitors are old school. Every effort is made to accomplish one thing. Because all of this, everything I've been discussing, the first, like... 15 to 20 minutes of the film is all establishing one overwhelming point, and it's one that I agree with absolutely, and it stands, in my opinion, it stands the test of time to this very day. It makes it believable. I've talked about this concept before. Galaxy Quest. You remember that? In Galaxy Quest, they were adamant that the old cheesy stuff had to look old and cheesy, but the modern stuff had to look real. They had to make it look and feel like it was real. That was the point. And so a lot of time and effort and money was spent on making things as believable as possible and realistic-looking as possible. And, hey, here we are, Alien. This helps do a lot of things. First of all, it helps to ground it. It helps to make it more, you know, more present-day Earth, believable, whatever you want to call that. But it also adds a wonderful, I could be there kind of aspect to it. Going to make it feel like these are just people... We're normal people, right? I mean, yeah, sure, there's scientists and there's engineers and they're probably a lot smarter than I am, but the point is, they are people who are people. I could see myself working that job, right? And I imagine a lot of you could too. Maybe not literally, but it's the kind of thing that is only one step off of real life, which is important. For the final point, the final component and the most important component of all, if you want to evoke a real good reaction out of your audience, regardless of the medium, the audience needs to believe it. If they, you had an excellently directed, excellently crafted, well-written, well-acted, well-composed horror film that was Alien, and the Alien looked like... I don't know, pick a random old Doctor Who alien, you know? I mean, it's, I'm talking old, old, like the, the black and white era. Pick, pick something that looks just utterly unbelievable. It would ruin everything. And that's the point. 
they needed, they absolutely needed the audience to buy into the fantasy. And so they needed that initial, I'm with it approach. I, I don't know how to better ex explain this, but this is something that I've, I've fought for and struggled with when it comes to a lot of things across my overall analysis of fiction, but also my own attempts at making fiction. If I write something, or if I design something, and I look at that and say, well, I don't have, like, I don't have the money and the power to make that actually appear the way it, it looks in my head, then I scrap it. Because if I go with the cheap, or I go with the available, what I get is something that looks a lot worse. And that absolutely ruins it, just like it would here. So, huge credit to all of this effort and all of this work, which makes this massive whirlpool of believability. Which is, forgive me for hammering this point in, but it is, in my opinion, the single best thing that Alien did. It made the monster horror movie, which is also sci-fi, more grounded than most sci-fi and most, most monster horror movies. Credit where credit is due. And it's, it's a huge team effort, too. That's why I went down the list like that. You know, it, it's the writer, it's the actor, it's the visual... Actor, excuse me, it's the director, it's the visual, uh, visual effects supervisors, the set design, it's the construction of the narrative, it's the way that they interact with each other, blah, 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 blah. It's, it's all of these things combining this. Please forgive me for gushing about this, but it's probably one of the better aspects of the film. Which, of course leads me to them going down and finding the pilot. No relation to the engineers, of course. I have my first question for you. Why was there a pilot ship which had dozens and dozens of xenomorph eggs just kind of hanging out in its hold? Now, I know that there's an EU extended universe for the Alien franchise, and it connects to several other franchises. In fact, I looked up a timeline for this sucker while I was looking into this. Did you know that uh, I knew I always knew Blade Runner was connected? And by always, I mean since I found out about it when I was covering Blade Runner. But Blade Runner's connected. Soldier's connected. Didn't know that one. Obviously, Prometheus is connected. Obviously, Predator is connected. But <laughs> there's... There's this interesting timeline approach here, because it kind of varies and depends on who decides what, and there's actually still people arguing and disagreeing with what counts as canon and what counts as not. Canon is, of course, you know, the codified law. It's what the creator and the current owners say is canon, right? But the problem is, when the creator and the current owners are not the same people, we have conflicts. For example, right now George Lucas can come out and say, well, this such-and-such such is canon. And Disney, who actually owns Star Wars, can say, well, no, this is canon, and the other thing is not canon. And you see why there's a problem there with that sort of disconnect, especially if it's not really a well-developed series. I mean, Aliens certainly got its tr troughs, but, I mean, you see the problems here? So I'm putting all that with a giant asterisk to it. But I do have to admit, I do kind of like how all of them do have a similar overall tone, even if some of the actual technological development and timeline wonkiness between them doesn't actually make sense. Let's move forward. So, <clears throat> they have the pilot, they have the eggs. Now, the whole reason I went on that whole timeline debate is because what I consider as continuity, that is to say what I consider as canon, for the sake of debating this, is massively up in the air. Usually I just look it up and be like, oh, in the book such and such, or the comic such and such, it's established that such and such. But here it's more like... Okay. So, 
I'm not sure how to discuss this one. Re-comics, re-books, re-other movies. Here's my take. Two broad possibilities. The pilot was taking this ship and all of its eggs to dispose of them or to study them for a way to defeat them or some other relatively benevolent purpose. The pilot was then infested and naturally... And that's pretty much the end of that. Broad option number two. The pilot was basically pulling a whale in Dutani, except much, much worse. We've decided instead to go ahead and spread these things, to you to drop eggs on an enemy as a bioweapon. How's that for a fun thought? You know, the irony is that wouldn't actually work as well as it otherwise could, depending on the circumstances. Like, if you're actually at war with someone, you just drop eggs on them, that's actually not going to be all that effective, as long as the people there are totally cool with killing their own people, which they might be, given the circumstances. Because all you have to do is start shooting the facehugger that is attached to the face, and thus is a lot harder to dodge your bullets. So you kill the person, but, I mean, the person was already dead, so that's not a huge loss, and now the facehugger is dead, and there's a whole bunch of acid all over the place. Anyways, <clears throat> so, <laughs> Ripley, who is awesome, by the way, Ripley is unironically one of my favorite uh, badass characters, just across fiction, in general. Actually, funnily enough, and this is no joke, one of my other favorite badass characters, regardless of other qualifications in all of fiction, is Samus Aran, who was designed and modeled after Ripley. <laughs> uh, so <clears throat> she says no I'm not letting him on board he's a contaminant interestingly enough they probably should have listened to her but you know movie's got a movie funnily enough it's not stupid though what happens is she refuses and the doctor uh, Ash he lets him in of course he does he's just following orders <laughs> Oh, Ian Holm. He, uh... They start examining the facehugger. And what's really weird is it's so hard to look at this film as if it's new. Aliens, xenomorphs, have been a part of my cultural universe, whatever you want to call that, my cultural awareness, for, like, over 30 years now. This, they're not new to me, you know? I am entirely aware of facehuggers and xenomorphs and queens and predators and engineers and pilots and all that fun stuff. So I look at this like, oh yeah, it's a facehugger. It's so hard to appreciate how much effort and work they did in expositing how it works all the way back in the day. Uh, the, the, the suction cup nature of it, how they're going to pull his face off. It's just a one little line of dialogue, but it helps to establish that really quick. The strangulation problem, the fact that it has the acid blood. All of this stuff is done very well and... What I love most is probably one of the most tense scenes in the entire film is the most mundane one. I love mundane horror. I absolutely adore that kind of... Okay, you're on a big ship and there's no alien and there's no monster, but there's a leak somewhere. You're leaking oxygen. Have fun! And now you got to find it and you, then you got to try and deal with it and just finding it is a huge issue and it's a big ship and blah, blah. You could see how that would be a terrifying thing, right? Well, so the acid gets out and goes through the floor. First thing they do is go, oh, God, 
and, and go down to try and deal with it, and it keeps going, and it keeps going, and then it stops. Eventually the acid has, has gotten to the point where it is no longer just going straight through. My goodness. <laughs> ah, that was an awesome moment. So, we also get, uh, I mentioned the timeline thing earlier. The actual reason I started looking up the timeline, uh, rather than for the reason of looking up the pilot, was there's this line that Dallas says. You know what normal operating procedures are? You do what they tell you to. We don't really have a lot of inferences or backstory for Weyland Dutani at this point. They haven't become one of the stupidest corporations in fiction yet. Synonymous with stupid evil, right up there with Umbrella Corps. So, we're not quite there yet, but that little line caught my attention. It's a good line, and it very quickly exposits the nature of the, the relationship, if you can call it that. And, of course, that's what got me looking, and ties it neatly into, you know, Blade Runner. So then we have... Oh, one other thing that's mentioned really quick. Maybe we should freeze him. Maybe we should put him into stasis. Why doesn't Ash support that? This is just a random question. Why do you think Ash doesn't decide, oh yeah, yeah, let's just put him in stasis? Honest question. I've heard theories about this over the years. The most common one I hear is he wasn't sure the creature would survive stasis, so better to risk the crew, and, and even though that actually risks himself, which means the ship might not even reach it in time. And There's a lot of issues with that, but I'll talk more about Ash and some of the issues later. I just, why not freeze the ship? Anyways, so that thing brings us to the scene. I feel like I've said this story before when I was doing the rumination on Spaceballs. So forgive me for repeating this a little bit. But I saw Spaceballs before I saw Alien. So when I watched Alien, I knew it was coming. It's going to pop out of his chest. It's going to be some gross. I was not actually prepared for the visceral nature of it. I was legitimately unprepared for it. Because in Spaceballs, it, it, I mean, obviously it's a joke, because it's a parody movie, but it's also relatively quick. He goes, oh, God, I feel terrible. Get this guy some Pepto-Bismol. He lays back, punch, punch, creatures out. In Alien, he thrashes and flails about for almost a solid minute before the first actual <sighs> and bit of a splash of blood, and then it finally comes out. And that's one of the beauties of this scene. Now... An oft-repeated thing is that they were not aware of what was going to happen. Not, not quite. Uh, unfortunately, I have heard multiple accounts of what happened, so forgive me as I share all of the accounts. One of the accounts was that they all knew because they had read the script. One of the accounts was that they all found out that day. One of the accounts was one of the other actors actually found out in advance because they were talking about the mechanics of making it happen because he was interested in filmmaking, and so he knew in advance and he was sworn to secrecy. One of the accounts is that there were three takes because the actual mechanism of the chest burster itself kept failing, and so they needed to, you know, reset and do it again so that the impact was a little bit lessened. However, all accounts agree on one thing. Uh, Lambert's, uh, Lambert's actress, I can't think of her name all of a sudden, uh, Catherine, I want to say, Catherine something, she was not really prepared for the amount of blood or the type of blood. Oh, yeah, by the way, one of the accounts mentioned the, the set people were there in raincoats, so obviously they knew something was going to happen. But anyways, she was not prepared for the type, amount, 
or a direction of blood, because she was actually standing right in the way of one of the, the blood valves, which was going... Push. So she got a face full, and it actually surprised and startled her. So of everything else, that bit is probably true, because every account agrees on that one point. I'm not sure what happened elsewise, but I thought I'd share, since it's a most often repeated thing that I've heard myself, in even, that you know nobody knew it was coming, and then whoop! Either way... Got, having talked about the behind-the-scenes thing, let's talk about the power of that scene. Because what they do is extremely particular, and it's... First, there's the sign... We know something's wrong. We know something's going to go wrong. Even if you've never heard of Alien, even if this is 1979, and you've never heard of any of this before, and this is all brand new to you, you'd know something's going to happen to him. He just had the thing on his face, the alien thing they couldn't re remove, but then he gets up and he's fine. No, he's, he's mind-controlled, or he's replaced by a robot, or something. So we know something's up. The, the movie in no way tries to hide that. It could have. It, it could have tried to build suspense by not showing it, but instead it gives us that so we know something's coming. That is one of the greater forms of suspense in this entire film. Knowing... Let me rephrase that. Not knowing what, when, where. And you're probably thinking, well, but then what do you know? That. We know that something is going to happen. Later on in the film, uh, it builds suspense wonderfully by having this huge ship and huge chunks of time where you don't actually see the xenomorph. Because it's there somewhere. It's still fine. It's still operating. You don't see it. So it could be anywhere. That's terrifying. I'm just grinning. I swear I'm not evil, but this is a really well-constructed film. I've got to gush about the good filmmaking here, because, bringing us back to the scene, we know something's going to happen. We don't know what. He starts convulsing. Okay, okay. Then he lays down and starts thrashing about wildly. Okay, so is it killing him? Is it converting him? Then we hear the first... And then the chestburster comes out. What this is, is a combination of dragging it out and then having a quick impact, and then dragging it out and having a quick impact again. It's wonderful pacing. Because what we have is that we know something's happening, but we know it for so long, and it's shown as so agonizing, and it takes its time to establish itself. So we're a little bit, we're just kind of getting more and more on edge until finally it happens. And when it does happen, it's just like that. Bam! He's dead. Chestburster's out. Then the film takes a moment, pauses, gives us a moment to really process what's happening, and then it rushes off. Brilliant. Utterly brilliant. So, <laughs> sort of not evil. King gets a burial. He's actually the only one who gets a burial. I, I know it's funny to call it a burial since it's ejecting him into space, but whatever. Now, what happens next is basically the exact same trick they just pulled, but in a much different format. Uh, Brett goes out. Right? And what happens is Brett goes out with, uh, with Ripley and with... Oh, God, I can't think of his name. Kodo's character. I actually can't think of his name. Anyways, he goes out with them. It's like, okay, now what? So let's, let's work this out. Let's figure this out. And they're careful, and they're cautious, and they have this motion sensor, and they're looking in there, and it's, it's, it's a cat. It's a cat. We're okay. 
We're okay. It's okay, guys. It's okay. Everyone relax. Now, the way a typical horror film will do this, in, and, and again, no judgment, but this is your te- classic tension, it's okay, actual shock. I know you've seen plenty of things that do that. It's kind of like the suspense form of an untwist. Because you build up to it, you release all the tension because it's nothing, and usually the music goes calm too, or just stops entirely, and the audio stops having that high-pitched whine in the background, and it all just chills. Then the actual bad thing happens, and then they're screwed, right? Many, many films and shows do, and games do this too, right? That's what I was expecting. Now, I have seen this film before, several times actually, but I forgot how it uses, because it's the same approach. It's the cat, everything's fine. Then Brett goes off to find it, and a really long time, several minutes pass as he's hunting down this cat. Now, at first I'm like, why? It completely ruins the... Oh. Because once again, if you're paying attention, we know what. What we do not know is where and when. So now it's just like, oh. Okay, and he goes into this dark area, and of course he's off by himself, and he successfully finds the cat, and we're like, oh, it's the cat again. And that's when the xenomorph pops out and yum, 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 and goes to turn him into an egg. We'll talk about that later. Yeah. So, another one down. Sorry, I'm looking at my notes here, trying to figure out where I am here. Yeah, notice the, this is when I say notice the approach to suspense. <sighs> Dallas goes into the vents with a flamethrower. It's like, okay, I got this. So he's going through the vents and they're closing the, the seals behind him one by t- one to make sure everything's locked down to prevent uh, movement, to, to restrict where the thing can move. That's actually very smart and good thinking on his part. So he's going through there. This is this is the Jaws method of suspense. I don't know what else to call it. You don't know... You, you see something that indicates the horror, not the horror itself. You see the, the, the barrels that indicate the shark, right? Or you see the fin. Or in this case, and this is something the Alien series loves to use, you have a motion sensor, which goes bloop, bloop, bloop. And... To add to the scene, and again, this is brilliantly constructed, what happens is we've got most of the cast who are completely separate from Dallas in every way. Like, he's over there by himself in these very tight, cramped corridors, terrified, obviously just not wanting to be there, and just putting up with it because he doesn't have a lot of choice in the matter. He's probably thinking about his life decisions that led to this point, since this is entirely his fault. Shouldn't have brought him back. Anyways, <clears throat> so, you know, all this horribleness is happening. The rest of the crew is hanging out over there. They've got the detector. They're the ones who know where the xenomorph is because they've got the motion sensor. He just has to go off of his own ability to see in a very dark area, and that's about all he's got going for him. If he was an actual trained military combatant, he might have been able to use that to his advantage. He is not. He dies. I know, I know, egg... Uh, I guess we could talk about the egg. Give me a sec, because I want to really emphasize this. They are powerless. The helplessness is a key critical component of horror, and actually one of the things I don't like about it. (laughs) I don't like being helpless. So the idea of them... Imagine for a moment the, the impact of watching a screen which 
you can't do anything. You're just watching a screen, and they're running off, no, no, and they're screwed, and you can't help them. Now, obviously, that is, I basically just described watching a horror film, but I'm trying to speak more in character. They cannot help Dallas because they're over there. So, shuttle won't take four. Maybe we could draw straws? Maybe someone could suggest staying behind, maybe? Ash? Buddy? I mentioned that Sigourney Weaver was more of a theatrical actress and hadn't really done film. A lot of the dialogue in this film was improv as far as the specifics. It's probably one of the reasons it feels so natural. They also did a thing before the film was actually made where all the crew, except for Weaver, were all put in like a, in a small enclosed area and just kind of hung out for a while and got used to each other and got got that vibe, got that uh, that chemistry going between them so they could all act off each other smoothly and efficiently when they actually got to the film. Now, the thing is, there's some conflicting reports about this one. I know. But near as I can tell, there, uh, the, uh, Mr. Koda was deliberately directed to start ta to be antagonistic towards and talk over... Uh, uh, I keep calling what I call her Ripley. Weaver. Sigourney Weaver. And so, when she says, Shut up! There's a degree of actual frustration and irritation there. She herself mentioned, and this has been mentioned by others, that she's really not good at improv. And ad-libbing and making up lines on the, the fly was just not her thing. And it was flummoxing her. It was throwing her. So when she goes to uh, take charge, she kind of actually is, which is, of course, the intent they actually wanted for the film. Weaver, that is to say Ripley, both taking charge of things. It helps to sell her as the total badass that she is. Anyways, <clears throat> so, then Ash shows up, and now we find out about Crew Expendable. This is a weird side detour in the narrative, but also very typical for horror movie structure. The side enemy, I, I referenced that earlier. Ash is amazingly incompetent at his job. I've kind of been pointing out things he could do as we go, because there are at least two points I was able to point out where he could have easily and effortlessly managed to, you know, accomplish his mission without any real issues. Hell, he probably could have just knocked out Ripley and then opened the door and said, oh my god, is he okay? And then just start knocking out other people. But here, here's the cash. There's one little thing about this film, and this is when we have to bring in the extended works, especially the book. Because he's all calm and, and precise until he tries to actually start killing Ripley. When he does that, he starts shaking. He starts violating. His, his facial expression goes weird and wrong, and he starts gyrating, and then they come to stop him, and he gets even worse. This is when he just kind of goes wonky. Why? Well, the easy answer there is because his programming is having trouble dealing with itself. Near as I can tell from extended works, he is programmed to um, be disinclined to hurt people. It's not a, a, a an Asimov law. It's not you must not harm humans. It's you should not harm humans. So, unless he has really good reason, he shouldn't. He's also ordered to, to get this thing back no matter what, which is leading to this kind of 30 go to 10 situation where he's just kind of going... <laughs> now, that is, of course, my interpretation based on extended works. As always, I'd love to hear your thoughts on what the heck is going on with the android scene because he flips out even before they start you know knocking his head off. 
as a kid, I always thought he was some kind of alien infestation queen thing until until the guy flat out says, he's a robot! And I was like, oh, got it. Why is he milky and weird and gross? <laughs> Ugh. So, <clears throat> I admire it. It's purity. It's unclouded by conscience, remorse, or delusions of morality. This is an old concept. The idea that the things that make us better people make us less efficient. This is an old, old concept. It is, this is seeped into most fiction. It's, this is in StarCraft, for God's sakes. You know, this, this is how widespread this is. Um, it's an idea that I actually agree with, because the idea is that the more coldly pragmatic you are, especially as a species, the more you can accomplish, but, of course, the less worthwhile it is to accomplish. That's the trade-off. So naturally, he admires this thing, because it just kills and reproduces and kills and reproduces. Although, based on his own description, this could apply to a lot of other things, like, I don't know, malaria. <laughs> or COVID, for God's sakes. Uh, or just the flu. So, this is when they decide, screw this, we're officially getting off this ship, and we're, we're just blowing up the ship. Screw it. We're done. So, they move in a tight formation. They have weapons. They have the scanner at the ready. Everything's good. Everything's cool. Here is that wonderful type of suspense. One last beautiful time. I notated it down. I didn't get the seconds. But from roughly 1 hour and 15 minutes to 1 hour and 32 minutes, no presence of the Xenomorph. Now, if you don't understand why that's significant, that's 17 minutes. That is a huge gap of time with no presence of the Xenomorph. And yet the whole time they are tense and on edge. There's lots of shading. That is to say, shadows. At no point... Well, let me rewind that. The way they use shadows in this film is brilliant. Because it's intended to obfuscate, of course. But it's only it only makes it actually hard to see in scenes where they actually don't want you to see what's going on. It's actually kind of a hint. Even when there's stark shadows going on, you could tell what's going on, and you could see what's going on. When the shadows get to the point where it's hard to tell what's going on, the xenomorph is nearby. It's a little clue for us, the actual viewers. Now, that's not universally true, but the scene with Dallas earlier in the ducts is probably one of the better examples of that, and the scene where it goes after Lambert at the 1 hour 32 minute mark. So... Lambert is over by the, the gas canisters, so he uh, he can't shoot. He can't shoot, so she dies. And so does he. One left. So, she is. this is when we find out the way they've been doing the self-destruct is overloading the core by turning off the cooling unit specifically, so... That actually makes a lot of sense. That also explains why you only have a set period of time to undo it, because after a certain point, the damage is just going to be irreversible. This also then serves to completely contrast the, the finale, the effective climax of this film, to everything else the entire rest of the film, before and after. In, in total contrast, it is loud. There are lights blazing everywhere. There's the sirens blazing. There's the countdown. Ripley herself is running. The camera has high motion rather than slow panning shots. It's doing this thing. Well, okay, it's not shaky camming, but it is rushing f through the scenes as it's following her. She is gasping and panning. Everything about this is turned up. Everything is now loud in terms of presentation. Once again, 
brilliant contrast as she is desperately trying to get back and figure and set, stop the ship from blowing up and then okay fine screw it get to the get the escape pod blow up the shit ship blows up oh also now we have a ticking clock which we actually haven't had up until this point it's the first time we've had a ticking clock in the film she gets out from what I understand and I keep saying that because I mean there's some inconsistent information about the making of this film this was actually supposed to be the end of the film. She gets out the end. Scott, this this is funny, Ripley Scott, said, okay, can I please add to this one last denouement? And everyone's like, yeah, sure. What are you going to do? Well, what I want to happen is there's this thing on board, and it gets, like, sexually aroused by Ripley. Uh, no. Oh, okay, okay, we'll, we'll axe that. By the way, Ridley Scott actually wanted to have a lot... Uh, Ridley Scott, excuse me, wanted to have a lot of um, far more sexual overtones to this film. I'm really glad they didn't get in. Also, H.R. Geiger wanted to have more sexual overtones. They didn't get in either. Still glad. Still glad. Um, so he wanted this final bit, and the thing was going to be there, but it was no avail. She shoots it. It, it eats her head off and then uses her voice to recite the final log entry and is now heading its way home. According to reports, he was met with silence on the phone after he suggested that, and then he was visited by one of the executives who told him that he was fired if he didn't change that. For once, I'm with the executives, and I want to explain why. It's not just because happy ending or whatever, or the... the feasibility of the franchise. It's for a purely artistic and creative reason. Hear me out for a second. It is the typical monster movie thing to do that, you know, we've beaten the monster, and then the camera zooms in on the monster, and then it opens its eyes! The end! Cut to credits, right? That is an extremely classic monster movie thing to do. Whether it's good or bad is neither here nor there. But the relevant point is, in so, in, if they had actually had it kill her, that's exactly what would have happened. The, the monster wins, and now it's going to Earth. And that's the horror, is that it wins, and now it's going to continue to spread its evil. Now, that works for its own right. But it feels in contrast to the overall approach the film has been building up till now. The xenomorph is not all-powerful. Here's the thing. The point of a monster movie, uh, monster feels redundant to say that, a horror movie monster, is that they're actually basically supernatural. If they need to ignore bullets, then they do. If they need to somehow teleport around to shock people, then they do. The xenomorph has been more grounded. It's part of that believability thing I mentioned earlier. It can be shunted. It can be tracked. It can be injured. It can be killed. That's all important. Because that's one of the things that helps sell that believability aspect. And the fact that she had to blow it out into space, and then it came into the engines, and then she blew it out of the engines, finally killing it, after you know having severe issues with, with it and being in the most vulnerable state and all that fun stuff, that works. And overall, I think it adds to that believability and that overall theme and tone of the Xenomorph and how it's approached as horror in general. My opinion. Final thoughts. I'm not sure how much Mr. Scott um, should be, be the kind of person who determines canon for this series. 
because I've read a lot about the things that he wanted to do, and wow. <laughs> then again, he's also the guy who has said that the Xenomorph's time has ended, that they should stop using the Xenomorph and just focus on other things, which I, I, I can kind of see where he's going with that, but I'm not sure if I 100% agree with it. I suppose it kind of depends on what you do with it and how you do it, as always. I am I'm only mentioning this in the finale here because I'm curious of your thoughts and what you think of that idea and his ideas in general, you know, more sexualization and the inner continuity that doesn't quite work and, you know, the horror movie monster thing I already mentioned and blah 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 blah. Either way, this has been an interesting experience. I I'd like to joke about this, but I uh, I had to take a nap in the middle of this cuz I was I was just exhausted. Uh, I've been it's a floodgate cycle, you know. I cram videos day in, day out. I, I get up, I work, and I go to bed. Um, and I had, I had to take a nap. I was so tired. Can you guess what I dreamed about? <laughs> it wasn't that bad. It was just like I woke up, you know, like thirty minutes later after my alarm went off, and I was like, "Wow, yeah, all right, back to it, back to the alien film." <laughs> I hope you've enjoyed, guys. I'll see you next time.